All right, we're getting to you quicker now. That was 10 seconds. That wasn't 15 seconds of intro music. I laid down the law. I think it's important to get to me, to get to the intro, and then to get to the actual, what you're here for is the actual interview quicker. Uh, welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of music, uh, culture, adventure, sports, science, tech. Today's guest comes from music. Uh, his name is Tom Hulkenberg, a.k.a. Junkie XL, a.k.a. the film composer that brought you the beautiful film scores uh, of Mad Max and Batman vs. Superman and several others. A real talent, uh, kind of a, a prodigy multi-instrumentalist growing up in his native Holland, a uh, kid who loved learning not only about different musical instruments and, and practicing them and getting good at them, mastering them, but a guy also wanted to master the technical side of things. Um, he had a mega double uranium global platinum triple hit uh, with a little less conversation, uh, which he sampled a guy you might have heard of named Elvis Presley. You've definitely heard this song. It's like laced ads. It's it was it's it was mega. Needless to say, what did he do after he did that? He threw it all away and started from the beginning, which is what I hope you get out of this interview coming up. Um, Tom Holkenberg is a man who is not afraid to start from the bottom. He's a man who has a healthy appetite for chaos in his life, for risk taking in his own life, and uh, he is uh, he's a really interesting guest. So let's start the show. Welcome. We, uh, you're an Oranier. You're from Holland. Yes, I am. What is it? You're also a DJ and a producer. So many massive DJs tend to come from Holland. Why is that? It's the cheese, man. <laughs> <laughs> the cheese factor, or just the cheese? No, it's it. No, no, well, uh, maybe a little bit of both. But no, if you want to be a DJ, start eating Dutch cheese for a couple of years, and then magic will happen. I, I could just see the imports skyrocketing to Las Vegas as we speak. It's 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 funny how it's um, how it you know became that situation because um, I know actually. One or two DJs, like senior DJs, that came back in the 80s. Um, one is Eddie DeClerc and the other one is uh, Joost van Bellen. Um, and they came back like late 80s from uh, America with these albums that they called the new hip-hop, which was, uh, you know, the first assets. And uh, um, it, it was really like an American invention, uh, so to speak, and uh, primarily from Detroit. And... Um, and they started spinning it, and it really, it really took off, and and it it caught people's enthusiasm, and it and it spread like a, a virus, like all over Europe. And uh, before we knew it, like in a couple of years, there were all these different dance styles. And um, I remember coming to America where people were talking about electronica first, and now it's EDM. But in Europe, we had like twenty five different categories, you know, with their own fanatics if you will and uh it was really interesting to see all that grow in the in the in the 90s and um in berlin it was it was techno right they borrowed techno from detroit and it, it yeah feel like it really got big in berlin but was there something particular to dutch culture or were, was that kind of i think what the, i think what the in? what the what the dutch really added um was uh primarily especially uh, in the trance music, like in the late late nineties, with all these like second, third wave uh, DJs coming up. Uh, to be correct, I've actually never been a DJ. I, I played live with electronic boxes and, and and mixing tables. I tried to put two records in sync, and it took me twenty minutes. But usually, a, a record doesn't last twenty minutes, so I would be in trouble as a DJ. So I'm sure everyone was waiting patiently on the dance floor. Very patiently. <laughs> Try it again, my son. You can do it. Try it again. Um, and, uh, so I, I, that was, that was never for me. Um, and, but I, I, I could see the mix up, uh, at this point, uh, everybody ends up with uh, a laptop on stage and you, you don't really know what's going on. And DJs are now 
doing live things on on stage with with their computers um, and live artists throwing complete tracks. Um, but when I t- started touring, it was like a couple of really big flight cases with filled with synthesizers and samplers and a, a big desk the size of this table, like a good four or five foot. And you would mix everything like on the on the spot. And uh, it was a lot of fun to do, but it was so expensive to, sh- to, to ship that stuff around the world, you know, when you were uh, touring. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, did you... Did you start in a musical family? Because you you started yeah. playing instruments at a quiet. Was was that from your parents as well? Yeah, my 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 mom was uh, was uh, playing violin and um, the recorder and uh, a little bit piano, and she was uh, teaching young kids um, music theory. Uh, so that was what she did, and she was very, um, I would say, not musical. You know, she was, but she was very crafted in teaching and and making kids extremely enthusiastic about uh, about music and my dad is uh, not trained at all um, but he has that natural ability to uh, pick up music and he plays um, the mouth harmonica uh, and um, he you know he would hear uh, a tune on the radio he never heard before and then he picked up his harmonica up and then he would just play it he would just memorize it and it's actually quite a complex instrument the harmonica it's very it's yeah i i i I try to play that too i mean it's like the 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 blowing out and then the breathing in to get the the half step up uh tone um and um so yeah i i I grew up with uh, with the uh, two of them and uh, my sister played a lot of instruments too so it was the four of us just um making music like on saturdays and sundays at you know very early age like you know since i was four or five um and uh i started picking up a lot of instruments uh, instruments i started with piano uh, a little bit of recorder, um, then a little bit of violin because my mom had one. But then the big thing happened when I turned eight, uh, I got a drum kit. And uh, that's when it became interesting uh, also for the neighbors. And uh, <laughs> because, you know, I I really got on it like full on. And um, it's, it's interesting, by the way, because I think a lot of parents, well-meaning parents often put uh, their children in piano lessons, put them in, in musical lessons. Uh, and it never sticks. You know, and it's stuck with you. Why, why is that? I think with us it was different because um, there was a piano in the house. There was a violin in the house. There was, um, I mean, a violin you want to be careful with because a four-year-old wants to play tennis with a violin, you know, and, and not actually playing violin. But a piano, it started with banging, you know. So I was actually drumming on the piano for years. And then, you know, my mom was like, maybe we should get him a drum kit. So... Um, <laughs> And I, I think what what is what is uh, great is that kids can um, can discover you know instruments themselves, and there are so many great uh, programs on various different schools where teachers just make these instruments available, and they can just like discover themselves what they what they want. And you find the really odd choices where like a girl that is ten says like I want to play saxophone. It's like how do you come up with that? But you know it seems appealing to that uh, to that girl, and then it's great when you know parents have the ability, or when the school uh, co supports that a child like that can try take lessons and see if it if it uh, if it sticks. Was that uh, when you were growing up in Holland? Was that was music education valued? I mean, was that something? Yes, where you, you it, was, like a, it was. It was. It uh-huh. was. It's like part of our system. Also, to get private lessons was fairly cheap. Uh, nothing compared to what it is right now. Unfortunately, if you now want to take a private lesson from a good teacher, you shouldn't be surprised if that's anywhere between seventy five and one hundred twenty five dollars for an hour, and that basically cuts out a big majority of uh, of um, uh, people that want to have their kids uh, taught education. Yeah, of course. Uh, with you, though, you, you, you started on the drums. That was, did you, I mean, f- start forming band beyond the family Saturday living room band, let's call it. Um, yeah, that was gone when I was seven. That was, yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. I'm Between cool four and that. seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can do it. You All can right. get away with it. But <laughs> after eight, it's like, no, no. Okay, okay. Uh, and, and did you form a group? Did you have like-minded kids out there where you're like, hey? Not, not until I was um, uh, 12 when I went to um, – um, the, the school system is slightly different in Holland, but when you're 12, you go to something that maybe you can call high school and it goes all the way up to 18 and then you go to college or university. Um, so when I was 12, I went to the first class and I was um, 
a fairly experienced drummer at that point. I've been playing for almost four years, and um, there was a strong shortage of uh, um, guys that actually knew how to play drums and were motivated. So I was playing in multiple bands from the moment I started, and I was very young at that point. So um, there was always a difficulty if I was allowed to do a gig, you know, like at night where it was a club where people served alcohol or stuff. But right. the 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 people in the bands that I was with, they you know they were pretty mellow. It was not like my dad had to be there or my mom had to be there. So all the way through uh, high school for like uh, f- uh, four or five years, um, I was just playing drums primarily, and then at a certain point, bass and guitar in different bands too. Um, and uh, that was great. I mean, what did I, it give you? Like, what did you learn about reaching well, did, audiences? Well, that that's one thing. I think the 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 first um, major experience is, uh, and I th- I think uh, it, 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 you can you can compare that with a lot of the uh, sports that you know that you guys uh, support. Is um, it becomes teamwork, and once you once you realize for the first time hey, this is something I cannot do on my own, but I can do it with five people, that realization is just so incredibly powerful. So for me to play bass at home, to play drums at home is great. But now we're with five guys in the room and we can actually play, you know, Roxanne of the Police and it sounds pretty good, <laughs> you know? And that nice. was like, that feeling is so impressive. And uh, and um, so that was the first thing. And then the second thing was... You know, learning all these different styles. So I was, um, I was really um, uh, in love with uh, funk. I was really in love with punk, and really in love with reggae. Uh, and those three kind of mixed in the same scene on 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 high school. And then you had uh, commercial disco. Not so much. Yeah. You know, like that was like a, a different breed. Even though later in my teens, I I completely fell in love with. Um, with disco and with the, the more electronic funk from the early eighties, like, you know, George Clinton started to do. And, right. but, um, so that was a great development. And then, um, you had to, you had to be, you had to adapt to all the different genres, yeah. right? You had to, and did you, were you particularly wedded to one or is this what your approach? No, I liked, I, 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 liked I liked, I liked music. Yeah. I liked, I liked everything. And I wanted also to be very good at everything, uh, which, um, um, it took a little bit of toll out of my um, teen upbringing, uh, so to speak, because um, I was not particularly very social at that point. I was just spending so much time at home and just getting really good at stuff. And then I found something else I was really interested in. Is like because I was now playing guitar, I was focused on building my own guitar amp. So together with my math and science teacher, I drew out schematics for what the what the uh, amp needed to be. And then the neighbors across the street were, um, they were selling radios and TVs. So they had a lot of really old TVs and radios that, you know, they were about to throw away. And I was able to collect them and then just solder the parts out that I potentially could need for the, for the amp. And how do you have the patience for that as a teenager? It's just like, well, I, I, I suffer from insomnia. I always had it as a, as a, as a kid. So as a kid, I was up two, three nights a week without sleep, without, you know, drugs or alcohol or whatsoever. I mean, I wasn't even drinking really in my teens. So, um, it was all about the, the, the drive to, to control, uh, certain things and just, uh, to make stuff. And to understand how it works. And right? to understand how it works. And and then by the time I was sixteen I had my own amplifier, you know, that uh and you know, I that was the coolest thing uh, on high school. So I showed up with the guitar that I had customized and with a, a an amp that I built myself. You awesome. know, it's like it couldn't you couldn't get cooler than that and, you know, be be on stage because I was a really small guy. I'm still not tall, but you know, but then I was really small and I had this uh massive uh growing spurt when i was 18 19 but when i was 16 i mean literally i was the size of my school back you know so um and there were so many guys that were like bigger and tougher and more in, into sports Athletic, and, and all of that, you know yeah. and you know they would always run away with the with the pretty chicks and you know but i had some i had nothing to offer like physically or something like that but I was a cool kid because I was like building my own amps and playing on customized guitars that I did myself on stage. So I was able to pick up some cool chicks as well. <laughs> <laughs> and that, but it was great because so many, so many of the musicians we've talked to on the podcast, it's, it's all, it's been about 
getting into it to attract members of the opposite sex. With you, that's a that's a happy byproduct of. Uh, it was never the focus. I mean, never the focus. It was, and, and that's why a lot of bands that I was in at the time, uh, I I got bored of the of the bands because uh, after. Um, this is how a freak I was when it came to details and, and precision. And that's my big connection actually with, uh, with, um, uh, with Ian is, um, is that he's, he, he's, he's so focused on, on, on perfection. And I had that too. So at, when we were done with a gig and we're talking about a bar with maybe 15 people at the bar and two girls that maybe look nice or not look nice. I, I, I forgot. Um, and we were on stage playing a show. And then when we were done with the show, I wanted to discuss in the dressing room all the fuck-ups that we did in, in the show and how, to, and how to prevent that in the future from happening. It's like, you dropped the wrong chords. You, you did this wrong and that wrong. And, but they had no interest. They had way more interest as soon as the show was over to start uh, talking to uh, uh, girls or to guys that were also musicians and... I was just like in a dressing room on my own, kind of just like figuring out what the plan should be for the next gig. And now we know why you went solo. <laughs> <laughs> How was that transition, though? You went, you went to, you, you discovered, you worked in an audio shop, right? Or a music shop, and you discovered. Yeah, well, I had I actually my. Yeah, well, my. my um, when I finished high school, um, I. I moved to the north of Holland and I started working in um, two things. I started working in a, in a traditional 1940 uh, bunker that was now used as a rehearsing space. Um, so there were five, six bands rehearsing there constantly. And I was one of the volunteers to make sure that everything was working. And, uh, and the other job that I had was working at a music store selling instruments. And um, that, that turned out to be a gold mine. Uh, because now I had access to equipment worth hundred, two hundred thousand dollars that I could possibly not afford, but it was all there in the shop, like mixers, um, the synthesizers that came out, the first samplers that came out, beautiful guitars, beautiful guitar amps, um, all kinds of effect pedals for guitars and bass guitars, drum kits, percussion, you name it, everything was there. Um, and I made a deal with the owner that if I would put in extra uh, time uh, to work on Saturdays or something like that. I was able during the week after the shop closed at six um, to stay till late just to make music and to get to know these instruments really well. So um, that's why my social life completely turned to absolute zero because um, uh, that was it. That was like, that's all I did. What, what was it about that solitary moment sitting there making beats that really attracted you is that is that just kind of are you an introvert in that sense or, or i'm like i'm an focus? i'm an introvert and an extrovert at the at the mm -hmm. same time so um when i uh when i'm on my own i'm completely uh, at ease and and happy that i'm on my own um but if i'm um out with uh, friends in town or i um um, we you go somewhere else and just hang out with people. I feel completely in my element too. Uh, so I ha I have actually uh, both. That's fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that what everyone wants? I mean, because you have this ability to focus and and drill down. And you know and what the downside is? The downside is that um, there's always that um, um, uh, risk of feeling guilty of one of the other. So oh. when you have long periods of solitude, you, you you start feeling guilty. I should really go out more and just meet my friends or, you know, yeah. visit my family or yeah. do this with uh, that person or that person. And once you get into a time period, for instance, you know, when I go back to Amsterdam for three weeks to visit my friends, like after three weeks of binge drinking with all your, with all my Dutch buddies, like easy it's like I, 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 really yeah. easy to do. I should really go back to LA and work some more because <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't. Get I love stuck. how you come here to work. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah for them, they're like, "Oh my god, another vacation for him in L.A." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so it, it, it yeah, so yeah. that that happens too. Okay, <laughs> so you have that that mix. When you first got into producing music um, under the moniker Junkie XL, what what was your goal? What did you want to get across? Well, before uh, Junkie XL started, I was actually. Um, quite unsuccessful for many years try to combine different styles together and i always wanted to find a combination between electronic elements and acoustic elements 
And I've experimented with that for, I think, almost like five years. I got my first record contract like somewhere in the late uh, 80s, 90s as part of a band and then on my own with somebody else in 92. Um, and we kept experimenting with, um, you know, the combination of certain sounds and it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't sound convincing and there was no commercial success really. Um, and for whatever reason, in 96, uh, 95, 96, uh, something changed in my approach. And I started then laying the groundwork for what became the first uh, Junk XL album. Right. And when that came out in 97 in Europe and in 98 in America, everything changed for me. And I started touring around the world and people were really picking up on the on the on the sound and um did it translate very easily to the united states because i know actually that, that's it, sometimes I, a tough market to crack if you're, you're actually thinking. it did uh, uh i had a massive advantage compared to other people because a i was not a dj and b the first two years i was touring with a live band so i was had a live drummer a live guitar a live scratcher and i actually had a rapper uh from a band called the urban dance squad uh, who actually had a, a a top five single in the in the U.S. in the '90s, "Deeper Shade of Soul." Oh yeah, and um, yeah. and so the fact that we were a band, and the fact that I had a rapper who was respected by bands like BC Boys and Africa Bombada, that made the difference. So we were actually welcomed in the U.S., uh, and they didn't quite know what to do with us, like when it came to radio or. But at least the, the club gigs were a lot of fun. How was the what was the difference between your your Dutch days of of your misspent youth in in uh, in in clubs performing to now as kind of a, a couple of years down the line um, were you were you different on stage were you better on stage I, I, It's a completely different feeling you know like if you're uh, I mean one of the tours that I did somewhere in the late eighties early nineties you know uh, we went all over Europe doing the thing that I did at the time. And, you know, you would play at, at squatted places for, like, five guys at the bar, uh, no applause, and like, ooh, every now and then. And you would, you know, try to make it work to now fast forward, uh, you know, um, um, 98 when, you know, I played on the, the main stage in, on Fuji Rock in, in Tokyo in front of, like, 50,000 people going bananas. Like, hell yeah, I was a different person on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but also, but that, that, require, with that, that transition requires belief in yourself, belief in your ability. You know, I think so much of music nowadays is waiting to get an audience before you really define who you are, right? You're, you're putting your stuff out there, finding an audience, and then, you know, whatever, by <clears throat> YouTube, via, you know, Bandcamp, Well, the thing, the, 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 the cycle is actually a little more complicated. So before you make an album that hits... Um, you start feeling more and more and more insecure about yourself because it's it's like years and years and years in a row that things are not quite working out. Then the problem is when you do have that breakthrough record, for a short time period, you become overconfident. It's like, oh, dude, everything I touch is going to turn into gold. And then when you start making music, that same insecurity starts creeping back in. It's like, what if it's not going to be as successful as the first one? What if the critics don't like the second album? What do my fans think? Right. So okay. it's actually, it's um, it's a really weird uh, uh, process. Yeah, a psychological process. Mm -hmm. How do you keep from going off the rails? I mean, not necessarily in the drugs and like alcohol sense, but just keeping on your vision or keeping on your I think what I always uh, try to mission. do uh, and I've made a lot of mistakes in that but what I've always tried to do is um, to make music that's really close to myself so um, if and I, and I have made tracks in the past where I wanted to be somebody else you know just like oh, I want to do something like them and just be as cool as them or something every time I did that it didn't work and every time I made a track that gave me goosebumps then potentially there could be another human being on the planet that also gets goosebumps. But if you make something that doesn't even hit your soul, but you just want to be cool, how can you expect somebody else to say, oh, it really touched my soul when I heard that record? And it just doesn't work like that, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I'm really curious. I, I, um, you know, I talked to this uh, Danish producer some years ago, and um, we were talking about whether there is such a thing. And he, he did he did um, some massive electronic tracks and in, in uh, that were big in Europe and beyond. But 
uh, we talked about is is there such a thing as as making the perfect electronic music beat? Like, mm-hmm. Is there such a thing as as predicting what the market will will accept and will go after? And you know, there's all these amazing production duos in Sweden and you know the UK who who've come up with some bangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always wonder is that a is it like a, a map? Is it just is it how much of it is like science and data almost, and how much of it is soul? Well, um, the, the the thing is that this now we're getting towards a subject that really interests me and what I've read a, a lot about, um, which is uh, music philosophy, and that is like, can emotion be quantified? And yes, it can. It it can be quantified in math. It can be quantified in in order. Um, in which certain things happen. It's uh, compare it almost um, uh, with um, how people find other people attractive. A perfectly symmetrical face. We've all seen these pictures where you cut a face in in half on the picture, and then you copy what was ever on the left to the to the right. Everybody finds that scary, and everybody finds that um, weird. But the perfect face to a lot of people is a face that, according to humans, is perfectly symmetric, which is not, um, and that has a little, a couple of things that are off. Um, now, similar things are can be found in, in music, and especially um, uh, some classical composers in the past used math only uh, to compose music, and Bach is one of the biggest ones. And yet he wrote so many pieces that when you hear them, you know, you feel like crying because they're so beautiful. They're so emotional. But math, this, math in the sense of how, in, in the sense that he could... There were rules. There were there very were strict. There were very strict. There was a very strict rule, like uh, how to go from one harmonic progression to another harmonic progression. And basically he laid, with a few other composers, the harmonic groundwork that we're still dealing with in pop music today. Like it's never been altered for almost 250 years. Um, and it's been proven uh, scientifically um, the most ideal mu- music to uh, uh, to listen to. Now, if that is possible to quantify, then possible it's also quant- to, uh, you're able to quantify what is the most ugly piece of music because that would be the 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 opposite of that. Yeah. And there's a great TED talk about that about um, a, a, a science professor, music philosopher. With math, he's making in that hour the most ugly piece ever uh, written. And people did find it the most ugly thing that they've ever heard in their life. I imagine it involves a didgeridoo. Uh, it no. did not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, uh, just my personal take. But um, <clears throat> so about so your upbringing, in, in what, what happened in your what happened in your youth that you uh, you know you hate the didgeridoo so much? <laughs> I, I you know I don't know. I, it just uh, maybe it's it, maybe it's the people who who uh, play them on the street corners in San Francisco uh, that that threw me off so much. Actually, the pan flute. Oh, the pan the flute. Pan flute. <laughs> anyway, so um, so in other words, structure in which to en- innovate. Right, so yeah. so the structure is there in which so that could did you uh, so okay let's let's hop skip and jump then and then we'll rewind a bit, um, but to uh, composing for film, which mm-hmm. is what you do chiefly now, um, does that does the film provide that structure? Yes and no. Um, what what I really like about um, uh, about film, and it took me um, I would say forty years to uh, to discover that about myself is that I always um, needed to be a film composer, but I couldn't be the film composer that I am today if I didn't have the the past that I have by going through all these bands, going through all these musical changes and career changes and everything that happened to me. Um, now, if we just talk about the music side, the, la- the latter years uh, of me being an artist, I felt almost like trapped in a suit that was so incredibly tight. And for whatever reason... Um, I could do whatever I wanted. Like I had no restriction or whatsoever. I could, you know, I could do a polka album. I could do like a, a dance album with an accordion and have Dolly Parton sing on it. You know, I could do whatever I came up with in my mind. For whatever reason, I was not able to do that. Um, I was only able to stay focused on a little area uh, in which I made my music. And it really suffocated me. So now, and this is the paradox... I'm given a very small margin in which to operate, which is the movie, you know. Um, and for whatever reason, within that margin that I'm given to operate, I now feel free and I feel completely, like, inspired and I feel like I can do anything. Uh, so 
Is it because of the visual inspiration? It's a completely different thing to react from, right? As opposed to well, I, f- I figured out if, if we if we compare it with um, with uh, painting. If I give you a canvas and I give you all the colors in the world and all the materials in the world to paint something on it, and I even say to you, you can pick any subject, anything, that's when my mind locks and it, it gets really complicated to get things done. How I see film scoring is that I, I get a canvas that is empty and I get a blue color and a yellow, yellow color and I get one pencil. And then they ask of me, okay, do, do the best you can. And then I feel really inspired to paint just something with yellow and with blue. That's, to me, that would be an enormous relief as well. And the, so the onus isn't on you to come up with all the colors and and no, I do, I do come up with the colors. I'm okay. I'm, I'm I'm just saying that it it's it's limited because you're working you're working for a film and the right. music is is supporting the the film that you're working on. It needs to breathe the atmosphere of the film, but I feel way more inspired coming up with musical ideas and concepts than when I'm an artist on my own. Interesting. Um, well, I'm going to drill down into that, but. I wanted to get back to 2002 when he had uh, a made little record by the name of A Little Less Conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Elvis Presley estate granted you approval <laughs> to remix that song, which is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Crazy process, or is that well, it was crazy. It, would, it, it started with um, with an ad company, uh, Wyden and Kennedy. Yep, um, and um, they were literally a few blocks down. Uh, from um, from my door with a brilliant um, producer and uh, an innovator for ideas, Glenn, and he came over with a couple of his colleagues. And um, this was in Amsterdam. Or? This is in Amsterdam. Yeah. So he came to my studio and he said, "We want to play you something." And so they played the commercial uh, uh, for the World Cup 2002, to, uh, directed by Terry Gillian, with all the big soccer stars of that time in there. And um, he played me the thing, and they had a little less conversation in there, uh, the original, and it did work. And but the, he liked the words, he liked he liked the words, and he liked the opening uh, guitar riff. But then as soon as it started playing, it didn't work. Plus, on top of it, the original is one minute and thirty seconds, and the commercial was three minutes, um, and it was three thirty in the afternoon. And I was actually producing Sasha's first um, album, Edge on Dagger. And they asked me, can you do a demo and we'll come back at 7.30? And I said, that's in four hours. I said, well, yeah, can you do it? And I said, okay. So I went to Sasha. I said, well, would you mind taking a stroll? I'm just going to do this. So I did a demo. Like I did some programming. I added synthesizers, like a fake choir, fake Hammonds, and I stretched it out to three minutes, made cuts to the picture, and it was really like, like really, really quick. They came back at seven thirty, and um, no, Sasha came back at seven twenty-five, and he and he said, "So what are you working on?" I said, "I'm just doing this Elvis thing," and and he's like, "This is a number one hit, dude. This is a number one hit." And I said, "No, no, no. I'm just doing this for a commercial." He said, "I'm telling you, this is a number one hit." So the Nike guys came in. They really loved it. Uh, they sent it to the estate. They Yo, were in love with on, it. Hang on, you did this in four hours? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, the, uh, the demo in four hours. Right. And then right. once it was approved, yeah. then I got time to do it properly. So right. I recorded live brass and extra percussion and um, uh, female vocals and and live Hammonds. I mean, then I could do it properly. Yeah, but the bones were there already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The approval was there after four something hours. Something about that was it. Something about that that time crunch that produced something that oh, I always loved that. Yeah. I always loved that yeah because it yeah. puts you on the spot yeah there's a good example uh your mind races quicker yeah doesn't it yeah yeah but there's a good example like i had to do this remix for um a japanese artist i forgot i forgot her name and um i think i had six or eight weeks to do the thing and yeah i was not inspired to do it i was doing other stuff and then i think 10 hours or 12 hours before the deadline my manager mikhil who's still who's still my manager he came in with a bottle of vodka and he's like okay Done. Over now. You got to do this thing. I'm not leaving the studio until the remix is done. And then I did it in eight hours, and it was a was a bomb. Yeah, it was a bomb of a remix. Yeah, that's so. awesome. That's fantastic. So you uh, did that song open doors in Los Angeles because you moved to L.A. Then uh, the song came out in 2002. When did you move to L.A.? 2003. 2003. Yeah. Uh, open doors everywhere because of that song. Mm. Well, yes and no. Okay. So um, I came to LA to become a film composer. Um, that wow. Yeah. Okay. You 
this was I the made next that stage in your evolution. Yeah. So, oh, I did, so okay. that, that's why I moved out. Um, and um, yes, it opened doors to um, to talk to people. But then when you would say like, oh, yeah, well, great, you love the remix, blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, I'm here for a movie. Oh, but that's something completely different. You know, like that's not, it's not the same thing. And then the road started, a really long road of almost 10, 11 years, you know, to learn everything about film scoring, um, to learn everything about um, writing for orchestra, to know the dynamics with the director, to know how to manage your time, how to manage a team, to deal with stress, to deal with teamwork, how to talk to studios, the... the the whole shebang was something I needed to learn from the ground up. Uh, I took a backseat in a bus and I saw how it was being done. And in 11 years, I was able to take a seat, you know, more to the front and more to the front. And now I'm driving the bus myself. Do you, did you, was it difficult to, and I mean, we've only spent about 45 minutes together, but I feel like you're a pretty humble dude. But was it difficult after a success, like international smash success like that? No, that was start fine. from the beginning? No, that was fine. Why was it important to start like that? Um... Well, I I have this uh, tendency to to be um, uh, self-destructive, um, but usually a lot of good things come out of it. So I would, even in my artist days, I would make 10 songs and I feel like I'm almost there and people around me would say, you're almost there. It's like, no, this is shit. And I would throw everything away and just start over and just start climbing back up that, up that mountain. Um, it's a good feeling, you know, like... From here, it can only go better. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So if you throw everything out and you you hit rock bottom, it's like okay, this is bad. Okay, this is really bad. But from now, it can only go up. That's interesting. So much. So many of us live in fear of hitting that rock bottom. And it's do fine. everything we it's can fine. to delay it. You never die unless you do. But unless you, you do. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 when you're composing, you rarely die. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that ability to to just do that. It, it, is that something you've had from childhood, or is that something that? Uh... No, I think I think I have it from my mom. My mom was always very restless. Like, uh, like um, um, she she would you know the, the house would have like a certain layout, and then my you know my dad would come down as like you know dad was obviously in a bad you know bad mood, and I was like, so what's up, dad? Oh, it's that day again. And then my mom came down, and yes, we had to move the couch. We have to move this, and like just completely redo everything. And then, you know, it was fine for a year. And then my dad would come down. It's that day again. And then it's like, <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm just going to play with the neighbors, you know. And then everything needed. So I have that same thing, too. Like that that search for constantly new, constantly new, constantly new. Not because I'm not satisfied with what I have, but I start losing the, the incentives from the outside to keep the creativity going. The so for Yeah. So for me, the radical shift from being an artist to a film composer uh, i cannot express how different those two things are talk about creatively the instincts that you had to rely on that were new well that was that there was none you know like i had to uh, yes i could make music and i was um uh, 33 at the time when i when i came out so i um I had an identity and I knew what I was all about as a, as a music person, but now I had to develop it for a different medium and for a different uh, culture. And, um, and throughout the years, I started to find out, oh, this is really what I want. And then I hit rock bottom again in 2008 when it was not taking off. In, it, it, was, it wasn't happening for me in, in LA, which was really rough. And then I bought a house and it was an escrow and it fell through and I was like, man, what am I going to do? The whole studio was in storage and it, I, I just went back to Holland and um, spent four or five months there and I was willing to stay there. I was just like, you know, let's give this up, this adventure. I tried it for, for you know, for six years, five years. It's not working. And then um, I eventually came back here uh, in, in August and then... I got a place up in Topanga where I was on my own uh, for for two years, and everything started turning around in 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 two thousand eight, nine, and ten. And then I started working with Hans Zimmer, and then directors were liking what I did, and and it just it was a completely like a one eighty from from the six years before. And I'm I'm happy that I, you know, found the energy to 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 come back to LA and pursue it again. Do you know what to attribute that to the the turnaround? Is it 
is it just time spent away in the perspective that that gives? Is it being surrounded by familiarity in Holland that? Um, no, I think it has it, it 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 has something to do with with what I what I am as a, as a person. Like if if I pursue something like. I really want this. I really want this. I really want this, and I'm so on top of it. For whatever reason, it never it never pulls off. But then, when I work really hard, but I take a little bit distance from the wanting, wanting, wanting. For whatever reason, stuff comes to me. Hmm. I've always had that. I had that with relationships. I had that with friends. Uh, you know, with with work. Uh, it's like if I really want something. That's you know, interesting. It's like an attitude adjustment. Yeah. Right. It's almost like it's, it's like, like if you if you if you had a can of coke there, and I'm just thinking for the whole hour, I really want him to give me that can of coke, but I'm not. Af- I'm I'm afraid to ask. Right. But I really lo- I I want that can of coke. And, but if I take more of a distance and say like, I'm really thirsty, and it would be nice if he gives it to me. But if it doesn't happen, it's fine too. And then at the end of the hour, it's like, hey, you want my Coke? Yeah. And that's, it's a stupid, simple example, but that's what my life is all, but been how all do about. You, how do you get in that zone? How do you do that? Like, that's, that's crazy. No, but that's I mean, a, but that's, that's, that's also where, where it's, it, especially with film composing, it's great that you're a little older because you need a lot of, you need a lot of stepping back. You know what I mean? And if, if I would have been thrown in a situation where I am right now with some of the big titles that I've worked on, when I was 28, I would have gone mad, like completely mad. Uh, you can't handle all those things at the same time and be very political about certain things or just simply have the zen to sit back and it's like, it's going to be all right. Whatever happens, this movie is done in two months. It, it's going to be done right. no, no right. matter what happens. Right. There's not nearly as much at stake in your mind. So to speak. There, it's there, like is, a... there is, but I, 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 can, I, can, I can step back from it. I could just leave it where, where, where it is. I can look at it. It's like, wow, there's a lot of stake, but it's not yeah. really affecting me personally that much as it used to. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about your career because it's, it's remarkable now, right? Uh, Mad Max, uh, probably the one you're most known for, but you also did Deadpool. You also have done uh, Batman versus Superman. Mm-hmm. You worked on that. Um, how important is the symbiosis between you and the director? Like how much it Oh, being, it's very important. That, is, that, is that the key relationship mm-hmm. for you? Yeah. Okay. Because it's it, why. Because yeah, why. I mean, for people that that don't understand the or don't know the structure in film scoring, it's like unless something really terribly goes wrong, um, the director is the captain of the ship. So uh, it's you know you're in the harbor where um, you know the harbor is called Warner Brothers, and then there's another harbor uh, two thousand miles away, also Warner Brothers, and then they give the money to the to the director. Uh, who is the captain of the ship, and it's like, okay, sail from port A to B, and we'll see you when uh, when when you get there. What uh, a appropriate nautical reference for someone from the Netherlands, by the way. Very good. But it, it's it's really what that <laughs> no, is. It's and, very, and, that's and perfectly unless, described. Yeah. Unless the, the boat goes so off course, there's going to be a water boat as chopper, <laughs> and he's going to say... More to the left. Right. You're missing the port. Right, right. So, and that happens too. But if you yeah. work with um, uh, strong directors that that have a you know career and really solid uh, view, then uh, it, it it rarely goes that way. So okay, so you you come in and and is the film finished? Sorry, you might have to take me through it a little bit. But no, is there's the film a, finished when when you so, uh, uh, sometimes sometimes not. So with uh, Mad Max. Uh, well, Matt Max, there was no script. That was the most interesting thing. So they all went out to the desert, a thousand of them. Uh, and then, uh, well, George, what are we going to do today? Well, let me see. Uh, let's do that. And so that's really how that film went. Um, whereas... Um, and and uh, sorry, the guitar player in that film, yeah. the famous guitar player hanging from the, the blind guy hanging from the front, What? whose brainchild was that? That, that, that's all George. And then you had to bring it to life. In the yeah, music. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, this was all George. Uh, so in the beginning, when I when I met George, um, the, the film had no beginning and no ending, uh, and it was still three hours long. Um, so the final chase wasn't in there, and the whole beginning wasn't in there. And the first shot that I saw was that red guitar player just, like, screaming at me in my face after an 18-hour flight from L.A. with no sleep. So that was kind of an interesting experience. But... <laughs> Um, but George uh, is super, super uh, detailed. And at that point, that was what I saw. Um, a movie like Black Mass was completely done, like almost like into the details before I even started. 
um, Deadpool. I read the script first, and then I I said, oh, I'd love to work on it. And then I saw some, uh, you know, some scenes that were in montage states, but they were still far away from actually a finishing film. Um, another film, an alternative film that I just did, Brimstone, that's coming out in January. Um, I chased the director for five years if he wanted to work with me, and he said, no, I'd rather have Howard Shore. Okay, you know, and then you know how it sure didn't want to do it, and then he called me back. It's like, are you still interested? He's like, yeah. And so I did, and it was it, it's a drama that takes place in the late 1800s in in North Dakota of the first the, the first settlers that that came to the did, to Dakota. A, a departure, can we say for some of the? I mean, the the films we've been talking about have been pretty big action films you know uh, except for black mask which was a mm -hmm. drama too that's right that's uh, right so i i love just writing for strings with really subtle sound design I love that's that your too. approach to those to like the, the well the, 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 for this movie uh brimstone it is with um black mass it was very um dark piano motifs that were really crunched in effect boxes and so that was that was a nice approach for that um but yeah i like i like um different styles of movies i love uh i worked with hans on movies like madagascar and megamind the dreamworks films and it's so much fun to work on those so it's it's what makes it, those fun oh man the, those directors crack you up because they they you know it's like hanging uh it's like hanging out life with family guy you know yeah, what i mean yeah. like it's like you have the family guy family next to you in the car while you're driving to vegas and then you have to hear all those conversations you know it's it's really really funny so if a scene doesn't work these like two three directors they they play out the scene how it's supposed to be and usually they do the voices themselves too yeah so uh so one of the directors of madagascar is actually the voice of the penguins yeah so he just enacts like a whole scene on his own like on the couch and you know you, you have to hold your pee you know it's it's <laughs> it's, it's it's they're really funny excellent um you're gonna have to uh, uh, walk me through this a little bit um because it's a, a theory that i just sprung in my head and uh is probably very weak so be gentle but it seems like um, nowadays films, I don't know. I, I just saw Arrival, uh, Mad Max, uh, Deadpool, Guardians of the Galaxy. Those are films uh, where the soundtrack just really stays with you, mm -hmm. you know, really in a powerful way. And it affects the, the um, how it's, uh, you know, your relationship to the film almost, mm -hmm. you know. Um, how much do you count for that in how you're, uh, how you go about producing it? How much do you think about... Is it, is it about your vision also of how you want the audience to react to certain moments or how do you how do you go through that process of, of thinking about um, the audience interaction with this film almost for every film you only have like one really clear shot at, at an empty goal and that is the first time you play something for the director uh, oh. so that is the that is the moment where you need to outshine uh, his expect uh, his expectations. Um, you need to clearly present what your what your idea is, um, and then it's like, wow, this is awesome, or this is mm, this is not so much what I was what I was hoping for. Um, so let's say you uh, you catch the director by surprise, and he really really likes what he what he's hearing. Um, then you can start massaging that in, into the score, and then it depends on what the um, the attitude and uh, approach of the director is. Let me give you two examples. Like, um, let's take two alt more alternative films. So let's take uh, Brimstone on one end and Black Mass on another end. Now, Scott Cooper is a, is a fan of um, minimalism. So little things to underscore... The really, director of Black Mass. Yeah, yeah. To have little things that underscore really big big events. Whereas um, Martin Kohlhoven, the director of uh, Brimstone, you know, he loves uh, Italian cinema. So he is like, bring on the strings, man. Bring them on and just let them sing, you know? Whereas Scott is like, no, 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 no. We can't go there. That's too much. Then there are directors that want to put a head on a hat, yeah. uh, what they call. So if you see a very sad scene, you hear very sad music. Um, other directors is like when we see a very sad scene i don't want any music or i want uh heroic music so when the person dies you know we feel for that person as the, as the hero that that didn't that didn't make it or something else or a licensed song um so um yes you're important in 
um, giving the right tools to the director, but ultimately the director will take the decision right. how the scene will be played. But that can be hard too, because when a director says, I want this scene to be played like this, you need to come up with the answer for that. Right. Because directors usually don't talk in music terms. They won't say to you like, oh, but why don't you go to this chord? And why don't you play a melody like this or a melody like that? They just keep talking about emotions and... So rather than think about the audience, you're really interpreting a director. You're really yes, but I mean, you always have the audience in the in the back of your head, and that's right. why uh, I usually do um, among friends uh, like uh, playback of the score where I am, uh, because if you play stuff back with friends and with audience, it's like you're hearing through their ears or as you're seeing through their eyes, and and you hear and see stuff that you didn't notice when you were playing on your own. This is, I mean, this career has opened up so much. I mean, it's it's fantastic, by the way, that you you suffered that setback and then, nevertheless, were able to to come back and to 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 build on it, mm -hmm. right? Um, where do you see this going in the future for you? Does um, it just work as on as many different kinds of films as possible. I want to at least I want to try, you know, different yeah. different. Uh, uh, genres and and I'm actually now working on a on a adventure film, uh, Dark Tower, which is also like a genre that I've never done before. Um, but I do it my way, you know, and I'm trying to find my language in in a in a movie like that. And um, at this point, I'm at a really comfortable level of like, you know, doing a few movies a year like this, and and it really it really makes me happy. And at a certain point. Something will start creeping in my system again. Um, like, uh, okay, what's going to be next? It's you time know? to rearrange the furniture. Yeah, and then it's you that know, day again. And then my biggest hook is, is is cooking. So you know, maybe <laughs> I'll uh, start a restaurant, junk food. We're we're looking forward to Junkie XL's um, junk food restaurant. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> so you got the name right there. Um, listen, thank you so much awesome. for taking time out. It's been a real blast. Awesome to All talk right, to you. Tom. Thank you. Right thank back you. at you. <laughs> All right. Go ahead and, uh, well, you heard it here first. Uh, junk food restaurant brought to you by Junkie XL coming soon to a food court near you. Uh, this has been the Red Bulletin Podcast. I have been, I continue to be Andreas Georges. Uh, you can read us on redbulletin.com, where an archive of these podcasts is housed. You're probably listening to us on iTunes. You might be listening to us on Acast. Shout out to our podcast host, Acast. Um, if you like us, help other people find us. Uh, leave us a review or rate us on iTunes. Um, that's it. You know what? I'll hear you next time. Next time.